You're listening to Common Era, a podcast about spirituality in an age of change. Is there a bigger story behind the sense of decline felt by some faith traditions? What positive visions of the future could we find in place of those anxieties? Here's author and musician David Benjamin Blower in conversation with Nicholas Postlethwaite, a Catholic priest from the monastic order known as the Passionists. So one of the kind of narratives I grew up with in the evangelical world and in other church cultures is an anxiety about decline, an anxiety about shrinking churches, shrinking congregations, you know, the kingdom of God itself being kind of on the back foot or that kind of thing. I found as things have developed, of, as, as more questions have emerged and people have felt freer to explore things, that anxiety isn't really there, certainly in the post-evangelical world, where I think the desire to hold on to power or the desire to sort of absorb the world into your paradigm is seen as not a good thing. Perhaps decline is almost celebrated in certain ways. I'm wondering whether those kind of anxieties about shrinkage and decline and, you know, the sense that the church is being edged out of the world by secularism have been part of the conversations you've been in and uh, over the years. Yes, I mean, I think, I mean, in some ways I envy your, I don't pretend to fully understand, but I, I think I, I understand sufficiently that the, the evangelical background is a much more fluid uh, in the best sense of the term, flexible approach. I, I, I think I know enough about it historically that there are also very rigid sort of points in it as well. I'm not, I'm not looking at it with rose-coloured spectacles. But I do think that by and large, if you're comparing the evangelical tradition and the Catholic tradition, the, the flexibility that I would um, presume is, is around in, in, a, in an evangelical tradition is a lot freer than it has been within a more structured Catholic sort of position. So the way that that plays out, I think it's playing out in both in both situations. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But I think the way it plays out may be at very different rates and in very different ways. So for instance, within the Catholic tradition, the emphasis on the ordination of the clergy, of the, the role of sacraments, of the way that the clergy sort of administer sacraments, means that if there's a decline in the number of, of men available, and it is only men, don't forget, in the Catholic Church at present, who can administer those sacraments, then the sense of structures being weakened and of decline and a sort of a drawing in, I suspect are probably more intense and in some ways perhaps more difficult to deal with than perhaps in the tradition that you're coming from. But um, there may be huge generalizations in what I'm saying there. But certainly from the point of view of, of coming back to my own situation, when I joined the Passionists, we are divided as, we're an international congregation, not a huge one, but we are in all the different continents of the world. But each place is divided into separate groups. We call them provinces. So within the province I belong to in this country, when I first joined, I think we, we numbered round about 120 or so which was, which was a you know, reasonable number. 
we were, I was also part of a group that had joined and there were four or five of us in our group. So that was, a, again, a significant sort of increase in terms of new people coming in. If you contrast that with where we are now, we're, we're down to probably about 16 or 17 men in our province. Our age profile is that much higher. And the, the, the non-existent people who are not joining the order mean that there's a certain inevitable decline that is very, very obvious and is causing various pressures. However, the other side of that is that as, as a particular boundary becomes less fixed or more porous, whichever way you look at it, there opens up possibilities of different ways of actually modelling the, the way that we actually move forward together. So that even though our numbers of ordained, vowed passionists are, has so dramatically declined, paradoxically, there are increasingly larger numbers of people who have perhaps been attracted by the, the underlying spirituality, the underlying sort of vision of the passionists, and while not wanting to join in terms of the way I joined and become fully-fledged, you know, members signed up, for, in which case they'd have to be men anyway because it's been, it's been an all-male situation. But they want to be associated with, they, they, want to be, they want to be part of the journey. So the interesting dilemma that we're facing at the moment is how does an old organisation which, which has still got energy and enthusiasm and to which I feel as committed now as I did 60 years ago when I first joined, how does that maintain its journey forward in a way <clears throat> that respects its integrity in terms of the vision but recognises that structurally what previously worked is no longer working. So you've got, you've got a, a juncture of where people are sort of saying, well, well, we want to count as passionists, but we would count ourselves as, as passionists living in a different sort of way. So the tensions between managing that are interesting, to say the least, quite often fraught. This friend of mine, Austin, who was a very charismatic, poetic, uh, prophetic sort of voice, he was very good at, at coming up with um, poetic aphorisms. But one that he used a lot was this one of saying that the two key roles in anybody's life, actually, but certainly in ours, are the two key roles of being an undertaker and of being a midwife. And he said that what we need to learn is how to combine those two roles because they're equally important and that you can't have one without the other. So the undertaker his role or her role is to recognize, push the analogy to its obvious physical thing, recognize when somebody is dead and help that person to be buried in the context of their life in a way that's respectful and recognizes what they've done. The role of the midwife is to say, well, where is new life coming to birth? And what help does, the, does this birth need? How does the, the new growth be nurtured in the first instance? Now that, is, that sounds poetically, it sounds good, which it is. Putting that into practice and working it politically so that you respect the, the, the process, because it's not like a sudden, oh, well, well, you're dead, you're gone, and oh, here's new life, come on in. That's where the paradox is. And I feel that that's the particular, I think it's a paradox that doesn't just apply to the Passionists. I don't think it's applicable just to the Catholic Church. I would suggest that in most people's lives these days, the same sort of tensions, theologically, politically, socially, are happening on a worldwide basis in a way that perhaps is, is classic. I mean, this 
Change has always taken place, we know, but I think the pace of change and the implications of change in our present world are such that, that we all need to take stock and sort of say, well, how do we manage that union between the undertaker and the midwife? Mm. I suppose the pain in that image is that, I mean, the undertaker's, you know, someone who's paid, the outsider who is able to... Um, in our society, yeah. I mean, in other societies, it wouldn't be the outsider. Ah, well, yeah. I mean, maybe there's the image we need to draw on because often we're having to do the gut-wrenching thing of being the undertaker of our own paradigm. Right. And perhaps culturally, for example, in, in many African countries, the whole, perhaps the midwife and the undertaker were almost the same person, paradoxically. Right, right. And then the thing of the midwife's task, the task of facilitating a new beginning, new life. But perhaps it's not you. Mm. you know, perhaps it doesn't look like you. Perhaps mm. it doesn't Absolutely. bear a resemblance to the things that you yeah. knew well and feel comfortable with. I'm um, fascinated by the Quakers I've met in recent times. And also, I should say, that the circles I'm in, there's a lot of people drawing on those wells. A lot of people are fascinated by the Quakers as an example, mm. perhaps as a map of you know, alternative approaches to, to being in the world and giving away one's treasures. But I suppose the thing with the Quakers at the moment, it's a shrinking group like, like all of them, I guess, almost all of them. And yet, I know so many people who admire the mm. Quakers so much. The strange thing is, everybody I know loves the Quakers, but nobody wants to be a Quaker. Mm. And the Quakers I know, seem com- they seem mostly all right with that. They, they seem happy mm-hmm. to give away their treasures mm-hmm. without demanding that you then, yep. you know, demanding membership or something like that. Which casts my mind to the, the sort of radicalism of, of the first century and yeah. that, that early messianic movement where essentially what I see is people who were Jewish and understood themselves to be within, mm-hmm. within the Jewish religion and never saw themselves as having left it, giving away the treasures of what they were carrying without demanding membership, without demanding that you... Although some of them were demanding membership, weren't they? Well, yeah. So, I mean, there you go. You see both sides yeah. of, that, of that debate inevitably happening. Yeah. Those who are willing to be midwives to something that looks yes. some, different to themselves yeah. uh, without losing themselves in that process. And then those, I suppose, a conservative impulse to... Um, I mean, you see it with... The, I mean, just, just... I know I'm interrupting you there. Peter and Paul were key examples of that. Peter was coming in torn between on the one hand wanting to sort of like be open to this new 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 movement but torn with the with the with the Jerusalem group group that was holding him back Paul was coming in from a from a a, a very different sort of background and was struggling himself in terms of and it, it was it was the two of them coming together sort of epitomize really the point you're making and, and I think that carries on in the uh, early church yeah I, I think leaning into the tension that's going on there Somehow I think we often miss it because we absorb yes. the meaning of our sacred texts yes. into the yes. paradigm yeah. of our castle. Yes, um, absolutely. We sort of manage to not see all the ways in which yeah. really it's taking apart your yeah. castle if you're willing to yeah. um, take it seriously. I'm interested in where you see glimmers of that alternative approach. One language for it is you know, the undertaker and the midwife. Mm-hmm. Another language for it is is the giving away of your treasures without demanding mm-hmm. um, something in return. 
Have you seen glimmers of that in your um, in your realm and uh, yeah, I think so. doing what you're doing? What you need to look for, I think, is where is the energy? Where where are the people who are enthusiastic about something? And I think it's not too hard to find examples of that. It's not always coherent, or it doesn't always necessarily fit into a neat sort of paradigm. Two examples come to mind. One one is a group that I helped to start some 10, 15 years ago. I'd had a job of being provincial for a time, which is sort of a leadership role in the order, and I'd come out of that job. And the, the local parish priest in, in Liverpool, who was a good friend, rang me up one day and he says, Nicholas, will you come and do, as we call it, a supply? What, what meant was he, if he was away for the weekend, would I come and, and serve for him and do the masses? So I said, well, I'd prefer not to, George. I says, uh, I says, if you're really stuck, I will. But he said, well, why not? I said, well, I, says, I, I just don't want to sort of feel that I've got to keep it going. You, you have a mass every Sunday and people come and uh, I'd be the, the, the one coming in and keeping it going. Could we not do something different? Could we start a conversation within your parish group, open-ended, not not in a in a in a in a closed church setting, you know, sort of look look at a theme or look at some of the scriptures or whatever. So George agreed that I would do that, and a group of people started congregating around that, and they were people who were were willing to ask questions, who were part of the Catholic tradition mostly, not entirely, some of them were not, but who were were open to say, well, we want something more than just sort of fitting into the the the, the way that we, we we normally go through the religious um, celebrations each week. We decided eventually to call it the vestibule. <laughs> The, the name Vestibule I, I took from a, one of my favourite poets, which is um, R.S. Thomas, and he's written, a, he's written a poem, and one of his poems is, is entitled The Vestibule, and it describes him. He was an Anglican vicar, and uh, he, 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 was, he was Welsh, and he, and he wanted to be more Welsh than, than anybody else. And, and it was a tension in his life between being a part of the Anglican church but, but also having this deep Welsh nationalism within him. And he wrote this particular poem on one occasion where he, he described himself in his little country parish. And he was, he'd, he'd gone to lock the church up. He'd, he'd locked the church door. And the poem describes him standing there. And he says, I don't know how long I stood there, but I was, I was not in the church, but I wasn't outside it. And that's why he called it the vestibule. It's in and yet not in. And we decided that the group, as it was developing, was, was going to, that, that name sort of fitted us. We wanted to be part of this Catholic tradition, but we wanted to feel free that we could, we could take it where our lives were taking us and where we were going. So that's one little example. Now, that group is still going. It's presently, it's, it's drawn other people in. We've got two people who are asylum seekers, actually, who are living in the place where we, where we meet, and we've made them welcome. So it's, it's not just a sort of an introverted scripture-type navel-gazing exercise. There's, there's, there's a commitment um, in different ways from the people who are in it. So that's one example, and I'm sure there are many more like that. The other example I would suggest is that the present Pope, to my mind, has brought a breath of fresh air, much needed, to the Catholic tradition. And he's written a couple of um, important letters, which we call encyclicals, one is all about the climate challenge that we, and it's called Laudato Si, which is taken from a poem by St. Francis of Assisi. And the other one is called, in Italian, it's Fratelli Tutti, which is probably not a good name because like, it means to all brothers. And quite naturally, a lot of people say, well, what about sisters? You know, but that's, that's a, a typical sort of Catholic sort of, you know, blind spot. And I'm not minimizing it, it's, it's tragic. But the, the letter itself is worth reading. 
And a bit of it I was reading the other day where he was saying, have we got to become much more local? Is, is there a need to sort of develop the local initiatives? Where do you belong? What's your belonging place? Is it your family? Is it slightly wider than that? And I'm keeping in mind the, the question that you, I think you started me off on this particular bit, where how do we begin to sort of um, marry the larger view of where a religious tradition is coming from and the specific expressions of that locally? The Quakers you gave the example of, I think is a wonderful example because they, they have focused in a, in a, in a marvellous way on the local group and they are very generous and open, as you've rightly sort of mentioned, in the way that they share their, their, their enthusiasm and they're liked, I, I agree with you. The danger with the Catholic tradition is because we've had this more universal, international, global sort of um, Catholic sort of claim, you know, we are the true church at, at its worst uh, claim, um, that means it's, it's more difficult for us to, to accommodate ourselves in terms of finding the local expression in the way that perhaps the Quakers and other traditions are, are better able to do. Like I worked for a, a number of years in the local Methodist, I was the coordinator of the local Methodist church in Liverpool, and I have tremendous admiration for the Methodists in terms of the way they've translated practical action with their spiritual sort of coming together. So um, I'm, I'm basically agreeing with the, I think, with the premise that you, you, you gave me at the part, start of this one. I think one of the um, a resonant concept to the, to the vestibule one you mentioned with R.S. Thomas, people I know will talk about the court of the Gentiles mm. and the, the idea that in the, uh, the Jewish temple there's the courts yes. where yes. kind of anybody can go yeah. and just the notion that that was, that was the exciting place to be yes. the place where there was a dialogue of difference and I suppose there's you know people in my world who would much rather be in the court of the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles in yeah. the space of, of yeah. difference I think I would as well <laughs> yeah yeah to speak into um, well, what you mentioned uh, you know I suppose the fluidity of evangelicalism that's true. There's, there's ways in which sort of a, a, a large, overbearing sort of hierarchical structure that joins, you know, that all, all different expressions of this thing are sort of answerable to isn't, isn't there as a sort of, you know, free in that respect. But then, of course, power, if it's not aware of itself, then it finds some way of creating a hierarchical order that yeah. controls. And, and I guess in those circles, it would often be in the realm of theology belief language mm. you, you know you have to make the right kind of noises about belief and theology or it's quite often quite homogenous in that respect i'm sure that's not across the board but i think that's been a lot of people's experience in those realms and you know then that finds its form in perhaps quite explicit forms of patriarchy perhaps subtle and implicit forms of of racism or discrimination, you know, uh, explicit discrimination mm. against people of um, different sexual identities and so on. So all those kinds of power questions are are there in some form, but then it's it's very different and it's strange looking over at other Protestant realms like the Church of England, where again it's it has a very hierarchical, complicated mm. structure that's, you know, many of the people I know in that realm have you know hard time. Yeah living in the midst of all of that power and complexity. And, and then there, there seems a much more diverse space for belief and behaviour yeah. and action within that realm. So all kinds of uh, 
different different ways that works out. But perhaps it comes back to your song, you know, the the Tower of Babel. You know, perhaps perhaps we're we're we're, we're having to revisit the basic human solidarity that exists between us all, and be very cautious about any structures we we put on it. The, the structure is there to serve the, the the human reality, not the other way around. And perhaps that's, I mean, I've not heard your song, but I could well imagine that that, that basic myth of, of the Babylonian tower, um, or the ba- Tower of Babel, rather, is equally valid today as it was when it was first told, you know. So I don't know whether that's landing it or not. But. Very much. Yeah, I think it's the liminality of the present that gives me a lot of hope. Mm. It's almost upon us, whether we wanted it mm. or not. Mm. It's happened mm-hmm. almost without us choosing for it to happen. We are beginning to exchange. We're beginning to enter into this massive exchange mm. of experiences. Mm. I think the more intentionally we lean into it, the, mm. you know, the, the better we can do it and the, and yeah. the better things can happen with it. The more we resist it, the more ugly yeah. energies emerge. And at the heart of it, there's always got to be authentic conversation, surely. Because only when there's authentic conversation, and, and by authentic conversation, I don't mean sort of necessarily soul-bearing, but where, where words mean what tr- you try to make words mean what you're trying to say and that they're understood and listened to. And I feel that, that that's at the heart of it. If there's authentic conversation, who knows what will happen? If it isn't authentic, then no matter what structure you have, it's going to be manipulated or it's going to be, be lost. I think that is the heart of what's going on. Is it, it, like it takes the form of conversation across yeah. lines of difference, and the truer they are, yeah. um, the more remarkable things happen. Yeah.